Corinthians chapter 7, please, tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, Let's go ahead and pray, and then we will turn our attention to our our portion this evening is verses 12 through 16. We'll pray, and then we'll work through it as we go. Lord, thank you that you have taught us that these are your words, and we recognize that they have come from you, and we ask you then to help us to comprehend them and to use them properly. And so we pray this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just uh, seriously, uh, two things. If I forget to take prayer requests at the end of the service, somebody please yell at me. Something that I did last Wednesday night, um, or did not do last Wednesday night. Uh, Paul is, at this point in time in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul has turned his attention to addressing their questions. Um... And that's what, the, that's what he explains to us in verse number one concerning the things whereof he wrote unto me. Um, what Paul does, and we will really begin to see this when we, because to this point, and even through verse number 16, it appears that Paul's primary topic is marriage. I don't really think that Paul's primary topic is marriage. I mean, he's obviously talking about marriage, but but he has a larger point to make than simply marriage. Um, And so the Corinthians did what we tend to do as human beings. We we tend to ask, I'm not trying to be critical of the Corinthians or any of us, but we tend to ask these kind of one-dimensional questions. Can I do this? Can I not do this? And uh, we we tend to think in, is this right or is this wrong? And, And there's legitimacy to that. But as we learn, working our way through 1 Corinthians 7, Paul instructs us that there are lots of different things that play in to how we live as Christians besides right and wrong. And certainly, as we will deal when we get into verse number, beginning in verse number 17, Paul is God, I guess, more than even Paul does not have our own individual human happiness as his primary goal. That's kind of heresy within America. But anyway, all of which to say that uh, a couple things that I think we want to remember as we're looking at 1 Corinthians 7 is that Paul is answering a question, a question that has to do with the physical relationship between men and women. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. We talked about that. That's a euphemism for much more than just a casual touch. Uh, touch there there are four euphemisms in the first seven verses that are all describing an act of physical intimacy and and that's what he is getting to there but he is also pointing out to them that there are lots of other things going on in the Christian life than just do this don't do this and he uses marriage to do that so in the first seven verses he's he is addressing it appears the, the concept that some people have that 
the most unpleasant thing is the most godly thing. And we tend to call that asceticism. He really deals with it in the book of of Colossians when he talks about things like don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. Um, right, And there are just some people who believe that. If it tastes good, you shouldn't eat it. If you enjoy it, you probably shouldn't do it. If it's nice, you probably shouldn't buy it because that's just the way that we're supposed to live. To which God would go, that's not what I said at all. Um, You can certainly abuse what I've given you in the world, but I never meant for you to not enjoy and use what I've given you in the world. And in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 7, One of the things that he insists that be used is physical relationship between husbands and wives. That then turns our attention to other things like more complicated marital situations. Right? The broad principle is that husbands and wives should have physical intimacy. That's what God wants. And he has a reason for that. We've dealt with that and we have spelt it out. Although... Paul points out, as he will oftentimes in the passage, his preference is that people live a single life. <clears throat> and he will, again, he will argue for that in a variety of places. I would argue for a single life. But if you are married, then God tells you how you should conduct yourself within that marriage in verses 1 through 7. Okay? <clears throat> and then we dealt with Paul talking about those who apparently from the context had lost their spouses to those who are widows or widowers. And Paul talks to them. Um, And again, Paul argues that his preference would be that they stayed single, but it is not mandatory that they stay single. And again, he orients their remarriage along the lines of their physical morality. Um, Again, and he's not trying to deal with the matters of companionship, and he's he's not... talking about that, what a blessing marriage can be. He's dealing in it within the moral purity framework for the sake of moral purity, right? Marriage is going to be what God has for people. Um, And then in verses 10 and 11, he explains that it is the Lord's will and that Jesus has clearly taught it that people should stay married, that they should remain married. And that's another theme that he will return to. And then that brings us to our passage this evening, beginning in verse number 12. To the rest. To the rest. And I won't spend a lot of time trying to prove this or demonstrate it, but I would understand the rest being those who are married, so they're not widowed, they are presently married but their spouse is not a believer. So believers should always stay married. But what if a spouse is not a believer? And so let's then turn our attention to verse number 12. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. All right, let's just make sure that we understand what Paul is doing there. He is not trying to contradict anything that the Lord said. He is not trying to usurp the Lord's authority. But neither is he giving his opinion. When he gives his opinion, he will be very clear that he is giving his opinion. 
And we will really deal with that when we get down to verses 25 through 35, where he states emphatically that he is giving his opinion. What he's doing in verse number 12 is simply making the point that while Jesus himself spoke to the subject matter of divorce and remarriage, as referred to in 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11, Jesus himself did not say anything about this particular framework. Jesus said, you shouldn't get divorced. From the beginning, God created them male and female, and husband and wife, and what God put together, you shouldn't put asunder. But as the gospel goes around the world, the gospel has a divisive impact. And when Paul goes into Corinth or any other town and preaches the gospel, there are going to be situations where one spouse welcomes the the gospel message and another spouse rejects the gospel message. What does the Lord have to say about that? And that's the subject matter of verses 12 through 16. Okay? And, and although we're not going to get to this tonight, I just let me just throw this out there right out of the gate. Paul will deal with it later, much later, 1 Corinthians, I believe, verse 39. You should never knowingly, deliberately, willingly marry an unbeliever. That's not the framework. Okay? There's, there's no permission to do that. And if you know somebody, or I don't think this is anybody here, but if you should happen to be that somebody who did it and your, your spouse later came, came to be a believer, praise the Lord. That doesn't make it what the Lord wants. The Lord wants believers to be married to believers. If you're going to be married, marry a believer. But what happens if you got married when you were unbelievers and then one person became a believer. <clears throat> so, so the gospel as it has spread, <clears throat> right, has, has found itself dealing with a problem that Jesus didn't specifically talk to. And that's what Paul is doing. Now, but to the rest, speak I, <clears throat> right, but not the Lord. So, <clears throat> in verses 12 and 13, Paul then continues on in what Jesus said, consistent with Jesus' teaching, believers should not pursue a divorce. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not. And if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. So there's the governing principle. Right? Here's Paul. He brings the gospel to this Gentile, primarily Gentile community. And somebody gets saved and the spouse does not. So God speaks, first of all, to the believer in that marriage. Stay married. Stay married. And this is the position that the Lord takes, folks. 
in spite of the fact that in a very real sense, that home will not function in harmony. That husband and wife will not be true yoke fellows. One is a believer, one is not. They are not, in many ways, going in the same direction. This was the home in which Timothy grew up. His mother was a believer and his father was an unbeliever. So if you have this kind of marriage, you are going to have two philosophies that touch on almost everything that goes on in the home. How you spend money. How you spend free time. What you do on the Lord's Day. How you raise and discipline your children. What values you will impart. For instance, in Paul's world, Paul writes these words... Right In verse number 13, The woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. So what if the husband says to the wife, Look, you, you want to follow Jesus Christ, that's great. I'm not going to follow Jesus Christ. I was born a Roman. I intend to die a Roman. I intend to live as a Roman. And in the month of April, when we have our annual celebration to the goddess Venus, I'm going to the party. And the April celebration to the goddess Venus was one of the most debauched of the Roman celebrations. Right up to and including the practice of temple prostitution. And the husband says, you go to church and I'm going to the party. And she goes to church weeping. And the Lord says, is he willing to stay married to you? Then you stay married to him. That is what the Lord says. That is the will of the Lord for his people. In other words, folks, contrary to logic, perhaps contrary to the emotions of one of the partners. Right? Here's a part. I mean, let's just let's just paint the best possible case scenario. Here is a partner that just simply truly wants to serve the Lord. They want to go to church, they want to participate in the ministry, they want to do all the things that Christians are supposed to do. They want to live as a believer, they want to read the Bible to their children, they want to pray to the Lord. And their spouse is an absolute unbeliever but says, I'm not going anywhere, I'm in the marriage. And that person makes arguments like, I could be so much more effective for Christ if my spouse was saved. Our home would be such a more happy, tranquil place if my spouse was saved. And the Lord says, what I want you to do is stay in the marriage. I want you to stay in the marriage. That is the will of the Lord. What Paul does then in verses 14 through 16, 
is explain why this is so. And again, folks, here's one of those places, right? When, when people are in that situation, <clears throat> when people are in that situation, and I'm not, really, I'm not trying to be critical or to beat people up, but they tend to be very narrowly focused about what's best for them in that situation. What's best for me is to get out of this marriage. And I've lived with this unbelieving spouse for a number of years, and it's not getting any better. And I have really prayed about this decision, and I just think that this is what the Lord would have me to do. No, it is not what the Lord would have you to do. He has told you what he would have you to do. And he is going to explain now why it is that he would have that person do that. And all of the arguments that we might bring, folks, and I don't know what all of those arguments are. All of the arguments that we could bring about why it would be better for that marriage to come to an end, God is is just going to completely ignore and he's going to give his explanation for why that marriage should remain. So, let's just work our way through. I just want to read the verses and then we'll come back and I'm not trying to insult you, but we'll come back and try and make sure that we get the clearest picture that we can. There's some, there's some dimension of this I'm not sure we're ever going to really get. All right? So, verses 12 and 13, God's will for a believer is to remain in a marriage even if their spouse is an unbeliever. Why is that? Verse number 14. Four, because... The unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? And I want to read verse 17, which is really kind of a transitional verse, into what is the larger picture that is driving the whole argument. But as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk. And then you have, folks, at the end of verse number 17, one of those little notations that is so critical for American Christians who are forever arguing that what Paul taught in 1 Corinthians only pertained to the Corinthians and cannot possibly be bound upon us as limitation. And so I ordain in all the churches. I'm writing this to you, but I teach it everywhere I go. Every assembly has heard me say what I am writing in this letter to you. So, right? What does he say? Why should should a believer stay married to an unbeliever if the unbeliever is content to stay married? Because the unbelieving spouse is sanctified by the believing spouse. Because the unbelieving spouse is sanctified by the believing spouse. 
And what is really pretty revolutionary for, the, for, the, for Paul's world is the way that he equates, he treats the partners equally. That a believing wife sanctifies an unbelieving husband just like a believing husband sanctifies an unbelieving wife. And if this wasn't so, then your children would be unclean. But your children are not unclean. They're holy. Now, if the unbeliever does decide to go, then you are under no obligation to preserve the marriage at that point. But you should stay in the marriage because, verse number 16, you do not know whether or not you will be the instrument of the salvation of your spouse. Well, that's a fun passage, isn't it? I think that verses 12 and 13 Right, are oriented to the way the spouses view the marriage. Right? They're just oriented very humanly. And the instruction, again, is very clear. You came to Christ. Your spouse did not come to Christ. But if your unbelieving spouse is content to be in the marriage, then stay married. Do not be the one to initiate the end of the marriage. And verses 14 through 16 describe marriage from God's perspective. There are things that God sees in a marriage that we won't see unless God reveals them. In other words, nobody's ever going to look at verses 14 through 16 and and go, that's our idea. That's the Lord's idea. This is the Lord's assessment of what to do. And what God sees then, folks is radically different not only than what we would be inclined to see. What we have just read is radically different from anything the law would lead you to see. You could never argue this passage, folks, on the basis of the law. Never. Because the law is oriented 180 degrees differently to this kind of thing. Let me just read it to you, right? This, this idea, right? You know this. This idea, the, the, these words that Paul is using, sanctified, clean, unclean, holy, those are words taken right out of the Old Testament. Those are legal concepts under the law of Moses. Let me just read to you one verse, Leviticus 5.2. Or if a soul touch any unclean thing, whether it be a carcass of an unclean beast, beast or a carcass of unclean cattle, or the carcass of unclean creeping things, and if it be hidden from him, he also shall be unclean and guilty. This is the way it works in the Old Testament. If you're clean and you touch something that is unclean, it doesn't become clean. You become unclean. 
Leviticus 11.24, For these ye shall be unclean. Whosoever toucheth the carcass of them shall be unclean until the even. Leviticus 15.4, Every bed whereon he lieth that hath the issue is unclean, and everything whereon he sitteth shall be unclean. And whosoever toucheth his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the even. So this is ingrained, folks, into the psyche of the Jewish people, that if you are clean, you don't touch the unclean, because then you will become unclean. Haggai chapter 2, verse 13, Haggai said, If one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered, It shall be unclean. Then answered Haggai and said, So is this people. So is this nation before me, saith the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. Unclean people turning things into unclean things. This is what the Lord sees. But we're not Old Testament people. And this is what the Lord says about marriage. Your your unbelieving spouse, yeah, they're kind of unclean but they're made clean by you. Stay married. They're made clean by you. Stay married. So that any, unlike anything else that you will find, folks, in the Old Testament, a clean spouse has a sanctifying effect upon an unclean spouse. Exactly what that looks like, we'll come back to in a minute. And since there is that sanctification in verse number 14, there is this possibility in verse number 16, you just don't know whether or not your spouse will come to know the Lord. So that it may be that you're married to an unbeliever today, but you might not be married to an unbeliever tomorrow. So stay married. Stay married. So what does Paul mean in verse number 14? That the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. What does that mean? Well, so often happens with difficult passages. Mark Minnick and Mount Calvary Baptist in Greenville is very helpful. Here are some things that verse number 14 cannot possibly mean. It cannot possibly mean that your spouse will absolutely become saved. Verse number 16 should make that very clear. It's no guarantee that your spouse will get saved. There's just the possibility that your spouse will get saved. So we should not read the verse as some kind of a, I I stay with this unbeliever because the Lord has promised me that they're going to save them. That's not what the Lord said. He didn't promise me. He didn't make that promise. It cannot possibly mean, folks, that your spouse or your children will get saved because you are saved. And the Bible is very clear about that. In fact, the first chapter of the Gospel of John just eliminates anything like that. 
People are not saved because of the will of men. We can pray for people to be saved, but we cannot save their souls. It is not a product of blood. Right? There are many things that are transmitted to our children through our genes and our DNA, but salvation is not one of them. There is no such thing as salvation by proxy in the Bible. When it comes to his eternal soul, every man answers for himself. Every man is responsible for himself. Cannot save your children. Cannot save your spouse. You know that. I'm not telling you anything that we don't know. Verse number 14 cannot possibly mean that somehow an unbeliever is protected from being judged for their conduct, supposing that it is a husband who enjoys going to the annual goddess Venus festival. And he participates in many of the debauched things that people do at those kinds of events. He cannot say to himself, I can get away with this, my wife is saved. Does not protect him from the consequences of his actions. What it does mean, folks, what it, what it almost can only mean is that the spouse and children of a believer will receive a ministry that most other people will not. So that if in one house there is a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse and right next door are two unbelieving spouses, there is a spiritual dimension work of the Lord going on in that first house that is not going on in the second house. And while that one spouse may long and weep and pray for a fully Christian home, they are far ahead of their next door neighbors where Christ is not present. We know the passage, folks, but in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Paul specific, or Peter specifically instructs wives about how to live with unbelieving husbands. I mean, he just talks as pointedly and as kindly and as directly as he can and instructs them about how to live as a believer in that home to live such a stellar Christian life that even without the word which is staggering they will come to know Christ so the very presence folks of a believer in the home who has the spirit of God dwelling in them has a sanctifying a setting aside effect in that home. And I think then in verse number 16, when Paul says, you don't know whether you will save, that he, he's not thinking in the terms of, you will be the instrument of salvation, but there will be an influence that you will have <clears throat> a mitigating, softening 
impact, right? That you will, that you will be an influence. It's, it's not uncommon for, for new, new believers, particularly believers who have really no, didn't grow up in the Baptist world or the evangelical world, to, to say to the person that led them to the Lord, you saved me, right? right? We, we understand that. But, but Jesus saves people. But Jesus saves people through the instrumentation of other people. They preach the word. They live the gospel. They pray for people. They have a testimony. And I think that's the idea that Paul has there. And, and that brings me then finally to one last question that I just, want to, I just want to open the door and look in the room tonight. Right? I'm not going to try and to develop it. <clears throat> Right, so here's, here's, here's Paul, right? Let me just kind of summarize, and I want to return to this, right? If you are a believer, and your spouse would be an unbeliever, and if that unbelieving spouse is happy to stay in the marriage, then you should stay in that marriage, and you should not pursue the divorce. And folks, I think that I can say this. I said it last week. I think I can say this with 100% confidence that it is exactly what Jesus means. No believer should ever initiate divorce. Should not happen. Believers may find themselves divorced, but they should not be the originator of a divorce. The Lord seems pretty clear about that. And that is exactly what he's saying in verses 12 and 13. If the unbelieving is content to stay, Stay in the marriage. And then there are the two reasons given for why that is, because there is a sanctifying effect and there is the potential that that spouse will come to know the Lord. So that you might find yourself in a Christian marriage. And so any efforts to get out of that marriage, to get into a Christian marriage may not be what the Lord has, and this is why verse number 17, folks, becomes such a foundational concept. How did you get, how did you get to that place? You got married as two, I'm just going back to Corinthian culture, you got married as two absolute pagans, and one of you came to Christ and the other one didn't. As God has distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called everyone, so let him walk. Walk the road the Lord has for you. Walk the road the Lord has for you. So there's the summary of the passage. And then, but then there is verse number 15. <clears throat> but if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. Right? And the ongoing question, the ongoing discussion, and completely unresolvable to everybody's satisfaction debate is, what are the boundaries of the bondage? In other words, is it a, is it a, is it a you're not under bondage to preserve the marriage, or is it the marriage being ended, you are not under bondage to remain single? In other words, folks, does verse number 15 include any right to remarry? And that's one of the reasons I just, one of the reasons I just want to tackle that tonight is just for the sake of time. What I am going to do in the not-too-distant future is 
come back to that subject in Sunday school. I'd, I'd mentioned a few times, I mentioned again, somebody had written me a note about divorce back when we were working through marriage in the early chapters of Genesis. Didn't completely understand the note. Have been looking at it, trying to get some light. If you wrote me a note about divorce, I would appreciate if you would clarify that for me. But I just thought I would take Sunday school hour in the not-too-distant future and come back and talk about it, folks. It really is the burning biblical dilemma is the right to remarry. And there are a couple of passages that seem to eliminate that right, and there are a couple of passages that perhaps grant that right and that's why I say it'll never be resolved to anybody's satisfaction because the lines are drawn and people that take their posture have their side. But we'll, we'll tackle it, all right? And I just want to deal. I'm not trying to ignore the issue or ignore the question. I have a position. I've held to that position. I have endeavored to live that position. And I will talk about that when we come to it in a few weeks. And now I think we'll do what we didn't do last week, and that's maybe take a couple of prayer requests before we go.